0: Our text for this morning is going to be Revelation 20, verses 11 to 15. Revelation 20, 11 to 15. This is the word of Almighty God. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened You pray with me, please, please. Father. there's a great weight here, and we really want we want to be faithful. We want to get it right. We want to be encouraged. We want to see people saved. We want most of all, that you be honored. So we pray that you'll teach us today by the power of your Holy Spirit in your word. Let us see truth. Let us respond to that truth. Let us be faithful to you. We ask it in Jesus' holy name. Amen. And you can be seated. Quick poll. How many of you, you can't show hands because I can't see you? I, or nay, I don't know. How many of you still have Christmas decorations up in your homes? All right. There's a nay amen. All right. Now, how many of you will still have Christmas decorations up a month from now? Nay. See, we're entering that season where Christmas is a memory. And depending on the family, sometime soon the household will move forward into the new year. Now, another question. How many of you are a little sad when it's time to take down the decorations? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I know in my house, it's a little sad when the lights and the snowflakes go back into their boxes. But it's got to be done, right? It'd be a little strange if you came to my home in June and found a tree up and a wreath on the front door, right? But you know what would be even stranger than a household that keeps the Christmas decorations up year-round? is the person who, when he thinks of Jesus, only remembers the baby in a manger in the Bethlehem night. It is a glorious thing we celebrated last week, right? It's a glorious thing that God came to earth, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law as we studied last week. But for Jesus to do the work that he came to do, He couldn't stay in the manger. He couldn't remain an infant. He had to grow up, to live a perfect life, to die as a sacrifice for our sins, to rise from the grave. In our celebration of Christmas here at PRC, I really want to make sure that we not only think of Jesus as a baby, but also remember that the baby grew up and he accomplished the work that he came to accomplish. Can I just ask you guys to acknowledge with me Jesus did not fail one ounce in the work he came to do. And now that Christmas is passed, I want to have us look forward not to the earthly life of Jesus but to the outcome of his holy work. Christmas was certainly about celebration. And Christmas was a step in the process of God fulfilling His plan. So ask yourself this. Where does that plan of God lead? The answer is that the work that Jesus began at Christmas leads to eternity future. It leads to the final judgment. It leads to heaven and hell It leads to your forever before God. So this morning, we're going to look into the scene recorded for us at the end of Revelation 20, and we're going to see where Christmas leads. There's a sobriety here. There's also tremendous hope. So follow along, and we'll uncover six quick points as we look at the final judgment. You ready? Point number one. Jesus is a sovereign judge. Jesus is a sovereign judge. Verse 11 says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, from his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. The setting of any story helps you to know a bit of what kind of story that you're going to watch unfold. So imagine... Do some of y'all like scroll through Netflix to find something to watch from time to time? Okay. I want you to imagine a picture is up there and there's a man in furs on a dog sled on a glacier. You got a pretty good guess as to what kind of movie that's going to be, right? that's all good. But what if... What if that scene of the brave man on the dog sled also has a flying saucer on the ground behind him? Has your movie changed? Right. You're pretty sure that's a different kind of movie than you thought when you were like going all Jack London in your mind just a minute ago. Now, if your movie has a judge's bench and a gavel, if it's a courtroom scene you know what kind of drama is about to unfold. And as we look to Revelation 20, we've got a picture painted for us that reminds us of a courtroom scene, but the courtroom scene on the grandest scale ever. Many people debate the images and the events that we read about from Revelation chapter 4, verse 1 to chapter 20, verse 10. Some of my dearest friends are deadly wrong about uh, Revelation 21 to 10, but I just like to make fun of them and we move on. And they make fun of me, just so you know. It's okay. But what we're going to read about right now has a great deal more consensus than some of the timeline discussions people get into and the the symbolic or literal discussions people get into. What we're reading about today is an event yet to come. It's the final judgment, and the clear picture begins with a throne and a judge. Now, in the book of Revelation... Descriptive details depict for us facts about the who and the what we see. So, for example, right here we see a throne and a throne could be just a chair, right? It could be any chair, it doesn't matter. But what do we see about this throne? It is great and it is white. It's not an ordinary chair. Something about this throne reminds us of the throne that we saw in Revelation chapter 4, the throne from which the Almighty rules. And the throne, it's white, which in Revelation reminds us of holiness. It reminds us of the purity of God. Again, think of clean white snow when you think about it. Don't, you, that, that's the way to consider what that color means in this book. So whoever it is seated on this throne is mighty, is holy, is Pure. And John says, there's somebody seated on this throne. And look at the effect of the one who's there. From his presence, earth and sky fled away. That could be a reference to the catastrophic end of the world as we know it. The, the final dissolving of creation, in a sense, at the last judgment, as the formation of the new heavens and the new earth come to pass. But it may just be a reminder for us that in the light of the glory of the one on the throne, heaven and earth are insignificant. Think about this, y'all. No matter how great the feature of creation, and there are some great features in creation, right? The Grand Canyon, it's, it, it's grand. The ocean, rather large, wouldn't you say? Mount Everest, big. Big. The blazing sun. Nothing in creation compares to the greatness of the one on the throne. And as we watch this passage unfold, we're going to see that the throne is the throne of judgment. The seat from which all of creation will hear the divine verdict regarding their eternity. Now, let me say something to you that may blow your mind in the middle of the holiday season. The one seated on the throne, the one who is so great that all of creation fades away in the light of his glory, that one is Jesus. The one who came to earth as an infant on Christmas is the one seated on the highest and greatest of all thrones. How do we know this is Jesus? Well, one way is he told us this was what he was going to do. In Matthew 25, 31 to 33, we read, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Or John 5, Jesus says, The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Jesus is a sovereign judge. Jesus is enthroned as the King of kings. And from his presence, creation itself flees. Jesus is not only the baby in the Christmas manger. Jesus is the God who created the universe, and he judges all of his creation. Now let's go forward. Point number two all people are subject to Jesus' judgment. So not only is he a sovereign judge, but all people are subject to Jesus' judgment. Verse 12 And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. So besides seeing the Savior on the throne, John sees people brought before Christ's judgment seat. All the dead, great and small, stood before the Son of God. In many ways, this is Hebrews 9:27 happening, right? It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Let me quickly call on you not to distract yourself right here. This is the spot where the detail questions make some of you run down paths of trivia, Some people debate, oh, are the saved included in this group or are they just watching? Some people start asking questions about, well, what if somebody's alive when Jesus returns? Do they count in this number? How do they fit? Some people get lost in wondering, what's this going to look like? But Can I ask you, don't right now go beyond the simple point being made. The point is that the great and the small All the peoples throughout history, whether they were seen as important people or not important people, are subject to the judgment of Jesus. Verse 13 says, The sea gave up the dead who were in it, death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged. All who have gone before, all who have died, all people everywhere, have their eternal destiny determined, pronounced by Jesus There's no other judge. This is what you're supposed to get. There is no optional courtroom B where some other deity is seated to determine your future. Jesus himself said, "Nobody comes to God except through me." John 14:6. "All people are subject to Jesus' judgment. Doesn't matter who you are? In the very end, when all is said and done, it is Jesus and Jesus alone who will deliver the verdict of your eternity. He is your judge. Let me point out one other significant thing about the fact that Jesus is your final judge. It's vital that you realize that you are not your own judge. Many people live with the faulty belief that they will, based on how they feel about themselves, declare their destiny. Have you met some of these people? They think that they're going to wish upon a star or follow their heart or some other Disney slogan and make their declaration a reality. Oh, if I just say it, it must come true. That's silly. Just because you declare a thing to be so does not make it so. You and I are judged by an external judge who will judge us by his holy standard all people all people all people you included are subject to the judgment of Jesus third point there are two ways to be judged Jesus is a sovereign judge all people are subject to his judgment and there are two ways for you to be judged Look at verses 12 and 13 here. It says, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. So far, We know Jesus is the judge and everybody, all people are subject to his judgment. But here's the question. How will we be judged? How will Jesus determine your eternity and my eternity? And the answer is, as strange as it may sound to you, it's this. Books or the book? There is a binary here. There are two ways that Jesus might judge you. And the different ways each lead to a different outcome for your eternal soul. Look closely at this verse here. You're going to see that there are two different things happening. Books were opened and another book was opened. Maybe you picture a big stack of books on this side. And then there's just one singular book over here. There's a clear difference between the set of books on this hand and the singular book on this one, the book of life. So what's it about? What are the two ways one can be judged? What's the difference between the books and the book of life? Look at the end of verses 12 and 13, and you'll start seeing what the books, plural, are about. Verse 12 says, at the end, the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Verse 13 ends, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. So one way to be judged is to be judged based on what you have done. That is to be judged by what's written in the books. And the picture is that Jesus, on his throne, symbolically, of course, can consult a written record of all of your deeds and pass judgment based on your behavior during your lifetime. Now, if you've been with us for a little while, maybe last year's Christmas series even, you've heard us talk about something we sometimes call the covenant of works. Go back in your mind to the Garden of Eden. And in that garden... Adam faced a test. You can call it a covenant. You can not. I don't care. Here's the test for Adam. Two sides. Obey God and live. Disobey God and die. That sound about right for what Adam faced? Obey, live, disobey, die. The outcome for the human race represented by Adam is determined by Adam's obedience to a command or his disobedience to that command. Works. What he did. Just like that here, before the throne of Jesus, some people are judged by their works. I'm going to talk about the outcome of that judgment yet, but you need to understand that that's one of the two ways people can be judged. The other way to be judged is for you to look at the book of life. One singular book. It's another book. We've heard references to it in Revelation already. In chapter 13, verse 8, and chapter 17, verse 8, the Lord spoke of a book in which the names of some people are written before the foundation of the world. And the people written in that book have life. So what you need to grasp at this point There are two ways for anybody to be judged by Jesus. One way is to be judged based on your deeds, your goodness. The other way is for you to be judged based on whether or not your name is found written down in the book of life. These are clearly depicted for us as totally separate things. And I assure you it matters greatly which of these two, or by which of those two things you're judged. With me still? Point four, here we go. The judgment of Jesus is final. The judgment of Jesus is final. Look at verse 14. Weird verse. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. This is the second time we've seen a reference in this passage to death and Hades. Here's the question, what in the world are we talking about here? Did we just, did we just start bringing in Greek mythology into the scriptures? No, no. Throughout biblical history, there has been an understanding that those who die go somewhere, right? Does that surprise you? People who die, their souls do not sleep. They do not remain unaware until the end. They don't fade into nothingness. Death and Hades are references to the places where the souls of those who have passed away remain as they await the final judgment and the final heaven or the final hell. Some theologians would call this the intermediate state, the state of the soul after death but before the final resurrection. So if you know anybody who has died in this lifetime, Their soul is in the intermediate state. Their soul is aware and conscious. They know who they are. They know where they are. They know why they are where they are. Maybe you're familiar with the story that Jesus tells in Luke 16 of the rich man and a guy named Lazarus. In that account, what happens? Two men die. One goes to a place of comfort. The other goes to a place of torment. Both men are very aware of where they are, why they're there. Both men know they cannot do anything to change their location. That suffering rich man is not paying off a debt. He's not having his sins burnt off of him or purged from him so he can change sides. No. He is receiving a just judgment for what he had done. Earlier in the passage... We saw that death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, giving them up to stand before the throne of Jesus. Now that this has taken place, there's no longer a need for these temporary places to exist. Once the judgment of Jesus is rendered from the great white throne, it's final. It's over. There's no holding cell. That's what God's telling us here with the casting of death and Hades into the lake of fire. They're done. All people stand before Jesus. They await one singular final verdict over their lives. Now, real quick, why do we say second death? Why do we say lake of fire? There are two deaths. All people die the first death unless they happen to be alive when Jesus comes back. Our bodies die sounds morbid, but your body's doing that right now. Some of you feel it. (laughs) Amen? Some of us feel it more and more every day. (laughs) That is the impact of original sin on all humanity. But the second death is different. It's worse. It's not just your body stopping working. The second death is the lake of fire. The second death is hell. In this section of Revelation, we've got two references that have been made to the lake of fire very recently, right? There was one in chapter 19. There's one just a couple verses up. If you look in chapter 20, verse 10 says, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. This verse tells us the devil himself is going to be cast by God into the lake of fire. That's a place of eternal torment. He will suffer the wrath of God forever and ever. So just in case you're confused about this, the devil is not in charge of hell. I don't care what cartoon you were watching. In fact, the devil's not even there yet. He's not going to be poking people with pitchforks. He's not going to be happy there. When the devil is finally cast into hell, he will suffer an infinite judgment because of his rebellion against a God of infinite holiness. What we want to get from this point, though, is this reminder. Jesus is going to judge. And that judgment from Jesus is final. There's no getting out of what Jesus says here. There's no changing places from hell to heaven or vice versa. Death and Hades, they're gone. There's only you standing before Jesus on his throne as judge. There are the books and there's the book of life. And the judgment that Jesus passes is final. This, of course, should lead you to a really important question. Can you guess what it is? How will I be judged? And just as there are two ways for Jesus to judge you, there are two and only two possible outcomes for you. Remember, the books represent you being judged based on what you've done. The book of life, that is something else. It's not you being judged based on your actions. It's something else. So point five Talk about one of the two ways now. Those judged based on their own works die. Revelation 20, verse 15. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Here's the simple conclusion if a person's name is not found in the book of life, That person is instead obviously judged by what's written in the other books, by what they've done. This verse is clear. It's unambiguous. It's absolute. If a person is judged by their own deeds, they're thrown into the lake of fire. Hear me very carefully. You don't want to have Jesus judge you based on your deeds, on your good works. If Jesus judges you based on what you do, you die. Humanity already had a chance to try to obey God and earn God's favor by obedience. Adam had that chance in the garden and he represented us. And Adam failed. And from that time forward, no human being descended from Adam has ever been able to be good enough to work his or her way to God. Listen to me. One of the worst lies any human being has ever told is the lie that if you'll be good enough or if your good deeds outweigh your bad, you go to heaven. It's not true. It has not been true since the fall of mankind. Romans 3.20 says to us, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. God's law, obeying the rules, will not make you right with God. God's law will show you that you are guilty. James 2.10 says, For whoever keeps the whole law, but fails in one point, has become guilty of all of it. Here's the problem. If we're guilty of even one failure, and we all are, we're guilty of failing to keep all of God's law. You can't say that your mistakes were little ones. You can't say that you only fell a little short. To fail a tiny bit is to fail it all. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us are guilty of sinning against God. How? How have we all failed? Matthew 5.48, Jesus said, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Did you hear that? Did you hear the law there? You must be as perfect as God. How are you doing? The law is a command and a call to be as perfect as God is. You can't do that. I can't do that. And any failure, any failure at all, is failure of it all. This is why it's true. That if Jesus judges you or me based on our deeds, we die. The verdict will be guilty. The right judgment would be that we would be cast into the lake of fire, suffering eternity for falling short of God's infinite perfection. Here's the question. Is there then no hope? Of course there's hope. The hope's just not in me. And it's not in you. In my goodness or your goodness. Remember, the judge is Jesus. Jesus came to bring forgiveness. There's another book. There's the book of life. It's still really close to Christmas time, guys. I don't want to leave you without hope. Point six. Those judged based on Jesus' finished work live forever. Those judged based on Jesus' finished work live forever. Look at verse 15. And I want to emphasize a word. Are you listening? And if anyone's name is not found written in the book of life. He was thrown into the lake of fire. Did you hear a beautiful word in that? If I have a, a flashback right now to a Disney movie where they are, a couple of evil characters are afraid the big bad guy is going to find out about something they've done And they say, he'd be mad if he finds out and goes, if? If is good. (laughs) Do you guys think if is good here? If your name, if, if, if your name is not in the book of life, you die. But the if tells me, tells you that there will be people whose names are in the book of life. There are people who are forgiven. There are those who, though they deserve death, will have life. Remember, the baby we celebrated at Christmas was given a name. What's the name of that baby who came on Christmas, little ones? Jesus. Jesus Jesus is a word that literally means the Lord saves. You know what it means to be saved? means to be rescued means to be preserved means to be held back from destruction that's what Jesus came to do so what's the outcome for those whose names are in the book of life you ask flip to chapter 21 or scroll to chapter 21 let's just look at 3 and 4 real quick Revelation 21 3 and 4 Just after the scene of the judgment in Revelation 20, we read of the new heavens and the new earth. And in that setting, there are people, the people, the people of God who will live forever in God's blessing, under God's blessing, as God's children. And the joy of this eternal life, it's beyond our imagination. There will be no more tears There will be no more suffering. There will be no more sorrow. There will be no more death. There will be no more pain. There will be no more crying. There will be no more sadness of any sort whatsoever. All will be perfect joy and true, deep soul fulfillment in the glorious presence of God forever. The question, of course... Is who gets that blessing? Look down at verses 6 and 7. And tell me if you like this. Revelation 21, verses 6 and 7. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. Here as Jesus speaks of those who will be adopted into the family of God, notice what he says and what he doesn't say. Anyone can have his mercy. To the thirsty, he will give the water of life. And this life... Jesus gives to the thirsty. He gives it to them without them making any payment. Revelation 22 verse 17 says, The spirit and the bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty, Come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Now tie that together to the book of life in comparison to the books of chapter 20. If you try to make your own rules, if you try to live by your own standard, you die. And you know what? It doesn't matter if you're the best goody-goody that anybody's ever seen. And it doesn't matter if you're one of those people that likes to roll around and call yourself evil. I don't care because neither one of those will make it. If you try to earn your way to God by good behavior or even participation in religious ceremonies as if those will do it for you, you die. If you try to bring any of your own self righteousness to the table, you die. If you try to rely on any ordinary human being, including those that they have called saints of the past, you die. Because Jesus will judge you based on your works. And none of us can survive that judgment. But if you thirst, just thirst for the water of life, if you know you need mercy, if you know you can't do anything on your own to earn your way to God, you can ask Jesus. And Jesus gives that water, gives that mercy, gives that grace freely and without cost. John 1, 12 and 13 say, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, He gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood nor the will of the flesh nor the will of man, but of God. Romans 6.23 tells us the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Listen to me, friends. Listen to me. I want to tell you what Christmas is all about. Christmas was about God coming to earth to save a people for himself. Anybody who thinks he doesn't need God, anybody who thinks he can make his own way to God, anybody who thinks any basic human being is going to get him in good with God, anybody who refuses to come to God through Jesus will face the judgment of Jesus and will not make it. But anybody who is simply willing to repent and believe, to turn from self and entrust his entire soul to Jesus, and Jesus alone, because of Jesus' finished work, and Jesus' finished work alone, that person will find that his name is written in the Lamb's book of life. That person, the one who has come to Jesus in faith, through faith alone, Will find salvation by grace alone. Christmas was about Jesus, the Lord saves, coming to save. And as stunning as it might seem to you, that same Jesus is the one and only judge. He will judge all people by one of two standards. If He judges you based on your works, you die. But Jesus, the loving, gracious Son of God, is willing to trade you His perfection for your imperfection. Jesus is willing to pay your debt and give you His righteousness. Jesus is willing to give you, free of charge, the water of life and forever in His presence. This is what the perfect life of Jesus, His sacrificial death on the cross, His glorious resurrection, this is what they were all about. So if you don't know where you stand before God, come to Jesus in faith and ask him for life. He will forgive you. He will change you forever. And if you have come to Jesus for life, thank him, worship him, and live in the genuine, unbreakable hope of forever and joy with him. I want you to bow with me now and pray. Lord, we've heard the gospel. Please, Lord, help us believe and love the gospel. Help us believe and trust in Jesus. Help us stop thinking for a moment that we can have anything to do with making ourselves right with you, but instead help us rest fully, completely on Jesus. Help us remember that our forgiveness is purchased not by our behavior, but by the sacrificial death of your son. And help us trust in Jesus' blood. Forgive us our sins, they are so many. And for those who know you, God, help us. Help us to absolutely love Jesus and be changed by Jesus and tell other people about Jesus. Help us to be humble and sweet. Anybody who understands your sovereignty has no right to be arrogant or mean-spirited. Help us, God, to be the sweetest, most grateful people on the planet because of Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.